Welcome to the St. Louis Young Adults Bible Study Fellowship Podcast. Today, one of our teaching leaders, Vicki Tatko, will be discussing Genesis chapters 49 and 50. Let's prepare our hearts, open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 49, and join Vicki as she shares truths from God's Word. Welcome to BSF. My name is Vicki. We are going to close out the book of Genesis tonight and study chapters 49 and 50. So let's pray and we will dig right in. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've preserved us as we have studied it this year. And I pray that you would continue to sustain and preserve and teach and encourage and mold and help us as we study these two final chapters in Genesis today. Uh, Would you be with my words? Help me to speak only what is true and honoring to Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, be active in my heart and in the hearts of uh, everyone within the sound of my voice, that we might see you more clearly, love you more fully, and more closely uh, follow the Lord Jesus Christ and reflect His glory to this world. So we pray in His powerful name. Amen. So I'm wondering what you do when you are waiting, uh, when you're waiting for a pickup order, um, or you're going to the doctor's office, you register at the front desk, and then you take a seat in the waiting room. If you're like me, you probably kill some time. And you, sometimes I bring out my assigned reading or from a class or this, uh, my BSF lesson, but other times I just pull out my phone and I, like nearly everyone else in the room, do something to distract myself. I check a news feed, I read some email, scroll through social media, watch a funny cat video. All of us in that room are usually doing some kind of waiting, a distracted kind of waiting. We're physically in the right place. We're doing things that would be expected uh, for that thing, but mentally we're not thinking about the appointment for the doctor. We're not preparing the questions that we'll, that we're asked. We're, we're somewhere else. We're entertained, occupied, distracted. And when we go to a waiting room without a phone, uh, without something to do, we remember what seems to be a human universal. Uh, we wait a lot, but waiting is really hard and doesn't seem to get easier, even though we have a lot of practice <laughs> waiting. I imagine that waiting was very hard reality for the Israelites in the, gen- in the desert, uh, Genesis original audience. Um, They were waiting for God to lead them to the promised land. And some of the realities in that waiting were very hard. Um, As we close out the Genesis study, I suggest to you that Genesis 49 and 50 is is a lesson about waiting. And it's learning how to wait well, not just externally doing the right sorts of things and being in the right places, though that is a part of it, but having the right kind of attitude, having the right kind of heart, having our eyes fixed on the right things, um, that is a part of waiting well. Um, what, what are you waiting for? The Israelites in the desert were waiting for the promised land, but they were waiting for more than that. Um, and the focus of Genesis 49 and 50 speaks to uh, the larger sweep of what Genesis was doing or what God was doing in Genesis to work the larger plan against 
the sin and death and pain that human rebellion brought into God's good earth. And so, behind the action in even those these two chapters have a lot of promises, they also have a lot of death, and we look forward to God's victory for death. Um, learning how to wait well is not just physically being in the right place, but having your whole self venturing everything on a yet unseen, maybe glimmered, but still uh, unseen, promised reality. What is that reality and how do we wait for it well? Um, God trains us how to wait well for His promises, and we should trust Him. And I think that's the key lesson for tonight. Uh, God trains us how to wait well for His promises, and we should trust Him. We're going to go through two uh, divisions in our uh, passage, and um, they're kind of they're unequal in length, so telling you up in front. Uh, we're going to look at Jacob's end and how he points us to God's deliverance. Then we're going to look at Joseph's end and how he points us to God's sovereign grace. They each have the same three parts, meaningful words, directions about death, and obedient mourning. Um, and Jacob's division is longer, but I suggest to you that looking at these we could have looked at these two chapters in different ways, different parallels, but these two parallels seem intentional by the author, uh, by Moses, that the narrator would um, help us to compare the men and then be able to interpret uh, why Genesis ends the way that it does. Um, so, that's what we're going to do. The first division, again, is going to be longer. Genesis 49.1 to 50.14. Jacob's end points us to God's deliverance. And then uh, the shorter but also important division, um, 40, I'm sorry, 50, verse 14 to 26, Joseph's end points us to God's grace um, and his sovereignty. So, this comparison is going to help us interpret uh, our take-home lesson from Genesis. So, let's dig into our first division. Um, Jacob's end points us to God's deliverance. And so, we start the first section. It is the largest and most prominent section. It's actually my favorite part, so I'm going to try to hold myself back as I um, try to get us through it quickly so we have time to look at the other parts of the passage. Um, this is Jacob's, his meaningful words to his family is his formal blessing. And so, we inter we can look at it. Get your Bibles out if you haven't already. Turn them on. Um, chapter 49, 1-2. And also the very ending verse, uh, 28, um, they set this in an envelope. What is this? Um, Jacob calls his son, says, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. This is prophecy, uh, things that are still to come. And yet, um, it's also, this is what verse 28 Fathers, the, their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. So, we're going to hold on to both those things. We've seen this kind of patriarchal blessing, prophetic and blessing um, before with, with Isaac especially, but also as far back as Noah. The blessing is binding. It's legal. It's like a will. It distributes inheritance. But this is about covenant inheritance. This is not about Jacob looking at the things that he's gathered for himself and you have these shoes and you take that tunic. This is about things that God has promised to him. And 
Jacob is leaning into that promise. They are not seen yet with his eyes. They are only seen with the eyes of faith. And so, he is distributing blessing and inheritance on things that God has promised. And so, this whole section, these meaningful words are undergirded. Let us not get distracted by the interesting features of which there are many. Um, Jacob is looking to God's promises and faith. And he is his his very like second to last act of his life is wanting to point his family to lean into those promises and know that they are a certain reality. And so um, when he is talking about uh, this, um, the prophecy, like when he says that in the days to come, or some translations might say in the last days, it conveys several things. First of all, it conveys that these are not just Jacob's words. These are Jacob's is speaking God's words. So, somehow the Holy Spirit is speaking through him. Prophecy belongs to God and comes from him. It also tells us that prophecy uh, denotes the future. And it can denote the far future or the near future or both. And sometimes it is very hard to distinguish between the two, like looking at a mountain range. It's hard to tell in the, in the shadowy distance what hills are, you know, which one comes first and which one's higher than another. It's hard to judge distance and size. A near prophecy can sit right next to a far one. Um, thousands of prophecies have been fulfilled. We are waiting for many more, including and particularly um, Judah's heir, which we will read about a little bit in this section, uh, Jesus's return and the fullness of his kingdom that will overflow blessing to all nation and set everything right, including abolishing sin and death forever. Um, and so, seeing some of these prophecies fulfilled in the Bible helps us anticipate others that God who it's not just you know esoteric knowledge this is about a person and a prophecy or a promise is only as good as the character of the person who is giving it and god's character is impeccable he has never fallen short his word always comes true so these words that jacob is speaking are not to, I suggest to you to we're interpreting them as his word, just his words, but as God's words. And so, um, four observations that I think that we can make about this chapter. Um, and this one is pretty obvious, the first one, and we know it from our lives, but God doesn't give everybody the same thing. And he usually doesn't tell or explain his choices. Yes, we can see in, in uh, Reuben and Simeon, Levi's blessings, uh, though it's hard to call them that, right? Um, our choices and our characters do have consequences, but God's gifts reflect His grace and His so sovereign wisdom. The right response when these men received their blessing, or when you and I receive blessings from the Lord, is not to look over at what God gave somebody else and wish that we had that but rather to seek to not to navigate God's plan and purpose for us with faith that God lovingly chooses what is best for us, for our good and for His glory. Even in the hard blessings, what would be the right response? I ask you about Reuben when he heard verses 3 and 4. Um, when Simeon and Levi got to the point, verse 7, cursed be their anger for it is fierce and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Um, those are hard words, but what is the right response to hearing God's 
hard words. Um, I suggest to you that it is not bitterness. It is not resentment or comparison, but rather thankfulness to be that God would care to speak those words um, and not cast those three men out of the family, but repentance to examine ourselves and to see for Reuben, did sexual immorality still lurk in his heart? Had he had re, he repented from that? Um, maybe he was still lusting after Bilhah or somebody else. Um, Simeon and Levi were maybe more intent on revenge and that occupied their heart and their mind. Um, that turning from those things would be uh, the right response, and to trust that God would see the consequence, um, even the hard ones, that He would use those for good, um, for the good of them and for their tribes, but also for God's glory. Because rebuke is a kind of blessing. I know it doesn't feel like that. It sure doesn't feel like that when I get rebuked. Um, but it is. In Proverbs, I wanted to read this. Proverbs 3, this is another father, um, uh, unnamed, but speaking to his son. Proverbs three eleven to 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the, fa- the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And we see that also in Hebrews 12. Um, this is an opportunity to see rebuke not as unloving, not as hatred, but as loving, um, an opportunity to repent and live differently. Um, so that's the first thing. The second observation I think we can mean the blessings from God are meant to be shared. Um, the the largest blessings, at least um, in the number of verses, are Judah's, verse 8, starting in verse 8, going down to verse 12, and also Joseph's, uh, 22 to verse 26. Um, those are the largest blessings, and you're like, wow, those are lavish. Um, but they were blessings of leadership. And what do leaders do? Leaders lead. And good leaders from the Lord lead to bless others. And so their leadership, their blessing, even though it is lavish and they get to enjoy a part of that, is uh, meant to be poured out onto the whole family. Um, And so all the other blessings, too, you can see even the ones that are a little bit more complicated, um, like Issachar and uh, maybe Benjamin, that those, there is a part of a, a shared blessing in that. Um, Zebulun had, uh, perhaps had benefit for ships and probably trade for all Israel and Issachar offered service. Maybe his, um, tribe would be really hard workers. And, um, Dan would administer justice. He and Gad and Benjamin would defend against attack. And Asher would grow food for King, which suggests that he would, he would send it, be generous with the best portions. Naphtali would have words of beauty to share, verse 21, which is, uh, I suggest to you probably the better way to translate that verse. Um, you could probably see that in the translator's footnote in your Bible. And then Joseph obviously would be a conduit of God's blessing to his brothers, which they were experiencing in uh, Egypt. And so that's the second observation. Blessings from God are meant to be shared. Uh, third observation God's blessings are meant to fix our eyes on God's larger plan. 
these blessings were not realized in the son's lifetime because, again, Jacob didn't have the, there wasn't stuff laying around that Jacob gave to this son and the gift son. But these are blessings for the future, and they came with a call to fix their eyes in the far horizon and an invitation to be a glad participant in God's unfolding plan that's bigger than your life, that's bigger than your tribe. And so, as Asher and Issachar and Naphtali were raising their children and having children and feeding their families and going about their lives and teaching them about God, all of these could be done mindfully participating and waiting in that future reality, just as they could be, um, as you and I probably recognize too, you can do all those things with not thinking about God one and his promises one bit. Um, but these are these promises are meant to lift eyes and say, this is what God has. Li- live in anticipation for that. Wait well for it. Judah's blessing in particular, we know from our vantage and redemption history, meant that Judah's ultimate heir would be a king. It points ahead to King David. And then further in the New Testament, I suggest to you, it points to Jesus Christ. Um, this is a, a strong, there's the lion imagery, but it's also there's a bringing low, there's a crouching, and the um, points to, I think, the humbling of um, both David and also Jesus in, the, in times in their life, and Jesus as he was crucified, but an exaltation um, where Judah's uh, promised heir, verses 8 and 9, would be exalted over his brothers and his enemies, um, and we, we anticipate that. Uh, we read about that in King David's story, but also anticipate that as a part of Jesus' story. Um, Jesus' reality is he is ascended in heaven and sitting on the right hand of uh, the throne of God the Father called the Lion of Judah. He himself has defeated sin and death, and there will come a time, Philippians uh, 2, Paul writes, when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is a, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, this is a kingdom that will never end. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So, this is not just leadership over Israel, it's leadership over the whole world. And it points ahead toward the fullest fulfillment of um of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the, the poetry actually uh, lets us fill the sweep, feel the sweep of that. As we go through Reuben and Simeon and Levi, we're like, "Oh my gosh, this is gonna so bad. How is it gonna like the sin?" I'm s- sure Jacob probably f- grieved this his own sin and seeing those sinful traits in his sons. But once we get to Judah in verse eight, there's a mark, a grammatical, emphatic mark, like you, Judah, his name means praise. Like it turns around, and um, it seems that the sweep of the the sweep of the blessings tend toward then positive. Even the more um, complicated ones have positive aspects. Um, the Lion of Judah will redeem, and He is coming, and so. Um, that is that again is an extension. So it's not just that Jesus would be exalted, but He's exalted also, and we benefit from that. Um, okay. Fourth observations: um, All humans need the kind of deliverance that only God can orchestrate. Uh, I suggest to you that verse eighteen stands out in this passage, and it could be the the key point, the highlight. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Um, it's it seems like it's tucked in Dan's um, 
prophecy, uh, his blessing. And yet, ancient Hebrew literature was often arranged differently than what we would arrange um, in the way that we talk about a turkey sandwich, which has a lot more bread than it has turkey. The important part is in the middle. And that that sort of symmetry, uh, there's a mirror structure that uh, ancient Hebrew writers in the Bible often use. We've seen that in Genesis, in the flood narrative, in the Tower of Babel, and I suggest to you that uh, it's also here. And the mirror structure would serve as a memory aid, probably for an oral culture, but it also helped with interpretation. If there are even numbers, uh, even layers, it seems like uh, the it's balanced. And if there's an odd number of layers, the one in the middle generally is a key point. Um, so we can say that this magnificent chapter arguably has two simultaneous sandwiches. Uh, chiasms is the technical literary term. And we can see the first one, um, Jacob ordered the sons not by birth, but by mother. And so it has Leah's six sons, then one of Bilhah's, one of Zilpah's, another Zilpah, another Bilhah, and then Rachel's. So you can see those are balanced between, um, not numerically balanced, but balanced between the mothers. Another po- possibility, which uh, I'm convinced of, is that this prophecy was arranged similarly by content. And um, the biggest and notable parallels come out uh, regarding leadership. And so, um, Reuben is is the outlier. He's the failed leadership um, but then starting with Simeon and Levi, those are grouped together. You might think, why? Well, they parallel from in the bottom. Benjamin, the ravenous wolf, the, so the warrior violence, and then moving in. Zebulun and, and uh, okay, Judah and Joseph, I guess, are next. Um, they're both princely, princely tribes, princely blessings. And then um, moving in, they're the most long, the longest and most praiseworthy section, so they balance each other out. And then Zebulun 13 and Naphtali, they have peaceful imagery, so their content is uh, paralleled. Um, Asher and Issachar moving in, um, productive service. And then as we're in the center, we have Dan 16 and 17 and Gad in 19. They both emphasize justice and defense. They use the keyword heals. Um, if this structuring is intentional, then the central concept would be this verse 18, which seems kind of odd on its own to consider, and, and yet it makes so much sense in the larger sweep of the passage, especially as this is a cry of a dying man who is facing his greatest enemy, death. I wait for your salvation, O Lord, or you could uh, also transit deliverance. It doesn't necessarily imply a spiritual salvation or a faith in a specific deliverer to come. The same word can refer to a military victory or a deliverance from plague, but this um, death is looming for Jacob, and his blind eyes we can see where he was attuned to the sins and failures of his uh, family. Um, his own weaknesses, but passed on. But did just Dan need prayer for the Lord's deliverance? No, they all did. Um, And it's not unreasonable to think that Jacob was expecting a personal deliverer who would come in God's own time. And Hebrews 11, 21 uh, seems to suggest that that is what um, Jacob was thinking as he blessed uh, as he extended these blessings at the end of his life. Um, death is an enemy. There are those who say, oh, 
well, death is a, just a natural part of life to be accepted, and we should just, you know, it, it's it's not bad. But what does COVID reinforce to us? If more than anything, death. If so, death is so natural. Why do we fight it? Why is it so painful to lose someone that you love? Death, my friends, is an enemy, and confronting death takes courage and strength. In fact, if we see death rightly. It takes more courage and strength than you and I have in ourselves because God is the only one who can deliver us from death. He is the only one who can help us face death with certain hope. Um, death is an enemy no human has ever come overcome except one, the Lord Jesus Christ who rose from the grave. And we can consider that evidence. It is sufficient, I suggest to you. The grave is empty. There's a steadfast testimony of hundreds who saw him after he was resurrected, after he was crucified, and then came back to life again. They were willing to die rather than deny the truth of what they saw, the reality of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus poured out as he, and Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit, which is another evidence of his, um, his uh, resurrection, that he's alive. And in that same way, Jesus, who has conquered death, he has promised he will not abandon, let anyone who trusts in him be abandoned to the grave. Um, Do you recognize your need for deliverance, Um, not just generally, but from death, and will have you turn to Jesus? He is your only option to escape death. Okay, so that's the end of this first, the first part of this uh, division. There are three parts. Jacob's meaningful words point us to God's deliverance. Now we see God's last directions about death. They point us to God's deliverance. Um, so that's the next section, verses 29 to 33. Um, Jacob is fortified, we can see, with a hope of God's deliverance. He's facing death, that terrible enemy. Uh, we'll read 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. Um, This is the cave of Machpelah. And so, down to uh, verse 31. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. So, those are Jacob's parents. And there I buried Leah. That was his first wife. Um, The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. That's a land that sort of is a down payment. Remember, we talked about that when Abraham had to bury Sarah, and he wanted to buy, not be given, but buy that land from the Canaanites. Um, that was the land that uh, God had promised to Abraham's family would be theirs um, for all time. But Jacob's directions about burial seem not to be out of sentimentality. Why else, you know, if that is the case, why wouldn't he say like, oh, bury me next to Rachel on the way to Bethlehem? But rather, um, Jacob seems to be wanting to stand, or lie as it would be, in hopeful solidarity, the certain hopeful solidarity of fellow heirs of God's covenant promises. And Jacob seemed to understand that there would be waiting involved. He was going to wait. Um, but our physical bodies do matter. So it wasn't just like, oh, well, God will come back. and Or I mean, like, he'll come back for me. Um, our physical bodies do matter. God's promises are not just physical or spiritual. They are that there is a very important spiritual reality, but it cannot be separated from the ultimate 
um, promise that God has given to us to restore also physical reality um, of his blessing when Christ returns in his fullness. And so, um, with, with those directions, we see in verse 33, Jacob died, his spirit was gathered to his people. And so, the third and final part of this division of uh, Jacob's, the mourning for Jacob, which was obedient mourning, points to God's deliverance. And so, there are two things that this next section, verses uh, 1, sorry, chart in, in 50, 1 to 14, this elaborate section of of mourning. Did that surprise you? It certainly actually, I was surprised at the in, two things, the intensity of grief and the obedience. Um, not, this was a big deal, which seemed like um, from the from the first time when Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Remember, he had done that with his brothers, with Benjamin, but this is not the same kind. This is not joy. This is grief because death is an enemy and he is grieving. So there's the intensity that goes all the way through this passage and the preparations and who's involved and the great number of things, but it gets to the end that it's so intense that when they get to Canaan, verses 10 and 11, and this very great and grievous lamentation was a week long, that the inhabitants, the Canaanites, looked at something this morning period and was like, whoa, this is really atypical, even for a culture that where mourning is a big deal. Um, but they renamed the place after this um, event. And we also see then emphasize the obedience. Um, Jacob was embalmed to make the trip, verse 2, that uh, Joseph saw, went through the proper channels. He went to Pharaoh and, and got Pharaoh's assent, verse 5, and then Pharaoh's own order, Verse 6, reinforced Jacob's direction too. So, you have a king and a patriarch who said, this is what we're going to do. And we see in verses 12 to 14, he was buried exactly where Jacob specified um, in the cave of Machpelah. Um, You and I can go and see that right now, actually. Um, It is in Hebron. You can see, I don't know if you can read this or not, but it's labeled um, as the cave of the patriarchs is is there in Hebron. And um, there's also a cave that's been excavated nearby that you can um, see. This is a real place. These are real people. This really happened. These are not just made up fairy tale stories, real people. Um, Okay, so that was a long division. Jacob's last things point to God's deliverance. His meaningful words point to God's deliverance. His uh, instructions at death point to God's deliverance, and the obedient mourning also points to God's deliverance, um, the intensity of that. And so, a principle I think that we can learn is that the heart of faith ventures everything on God's promises. The heart of faith ventures everything on God's promises. Um, in temperate climates like St. Louis have four seats have four seasons. And so, um, in January, st- stores start moving their winter things to clearance. And in February, they usually put out the new spring clothes or sometimes into March. But these are clothes that do not fit February. They are not warm enough. The colors are too, way too bright and happy for the cold that's bitter. I have a really hard time actually being anywhere seasonally other than what I am. And so I am usually get intensely cold in February and go to the store and try to buy something warm. And there's nothing there for me. There's shorts. There's a fun Easter dress. 
Um, but there, there are that process of stores doing that and shoppers that buy. That is an act of faith. They are shoppers, even though they go and it's still cold out, they're still wearing their coat, there's still snow on the ground, they're buying a pair of shorts, they're buying an Easter dress, um, because they know it is coming. It's so certain. Um, wouldn't it? Wouldn't they look foolish if it kept being winter? Well, that never has happened. <laughs> um, I'm the one that's usually foolish because I get a, a nice warm thing and then it warms up and I can't wear it for <laughs> I forget about it next year. Um, but the stores and the customers have this rhythm in the seasons that they are living with a certain hope. The confidence they have about spring coming doesn't make it come any faster. And yet, everyone, the owner, the managers, um, the clerks, the workers, everyone in the factories and building the, um, the infrastructure and the transportation, all those people cooperate together in living expectancy that what they do not see will actually become a reality. And when it comes, they are ready. This exemplifies, actually, I think is a perfect illustration of the kind of living and dying that Christians are called to do because the heart of faith is called to venture everything on God's promises. We are called to live with the reality that we can't see. The reality that Jesus' kingdom is here. It has come, and yet it is not yet fully fulfilled. And so there is sin, there is death. We face our own sinfulness, um, but we're called not to live just like we're in the waiting room and we're external, you know, we're in the physically the right place, but we're distracted. When your name is called, you're almost surprised when you look up your phone. But we're called to live like the stores and shoppers who anticipate the coming season before it happens and venture all on that. Those stores venture all. The people who are spending their clothing budget venture all on that. Um, how do God's promises? Um, shape your everyday decisions. Um, how does the the future that you see given for God's promises affect your spending, mold your participation in the life of your church? How does it affect how you behave around your coworkers, your neighbors, your family who don't share the hope that you have in Christ? How does it influence the way that you pray and what you pray for? Um, how does it influence the coming reality <laughs> of Christ's kingdom the, in his fullness, how does it influence what you are doing in a physical waiting room when you're waiting for your doctor? Um, it should feel like you are venturing it all on faith, like you're buying spring clothes when there's still snow on the ground. Because my friends is confident. I mean, it's so silly right now for me in February to think, oh my goodness, spring will never come. But there's a part of my heart that kind of believes that spring is never going to come. But the reality is Jesus's return is more certain than the coming and changing of the seasons in St. Louis. Um, this is the time, knowing that Jesus is coming any day, for you and me to get ready and to live to seek him in his word, to seek to share the gospel with people who are not yet in Christ or have that hope, to hunger after the personal holiness that Jesus calls us to, and facing death, to face death with the hope, 
with the sure and certain hope that Jesus will not abandon those who trust him to the grave. Um, it, gre- death is not a joyful thing. It is very sad and grievous to see the image of God be corrupted and decayed in that way. And yet we are called to grieve with hope. Um, for those of who trust Jesus, death will not have the last word, period. God trains us to wait well for his promises, and we should trust him. So in this last section, last division, we're going to see these same three parallels in Joseph's end. He's going to point us to God's sovereign grace. Um, And I think it will help us understand why the book ends the way it does. We see first Joseph's meaningful words of uh, forgiveness and um, God's grace come first in verse 15 to 21. Um, so remember, Jacob, when he was afraid that Esau would retaliate after um, their father Isaac died in the same way, Jacob's sons fear that Joseph is going to retaliate or the old crime against him. It is tempting in verse 15 as they say like, oh, Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to them, did to him. Um, it's tempting to let those old fears come back. Um, maybe you've had that experience of someone forgave you for an old grievous sin, and then you resurrect it, and you think that they've changed their mind. Um, these forgetful, fearful brothers made a two-part plan. It's very similar to Jacob's moves to placate his brother and Esau in Genesis 32 to 33. They send a message to Joseph, um, seems like by proxy in verse 16 to 17, and then they come and bow before him in verse 18. This is another fulfillment of Joseph's dream that he had, remember, his very first dream. And so, um, they say at the end, behold, we are your servants. And Joseph's response to that, to them was the same um, as it was in chapter 45. But here at this point, these meaningful words, this is a high point of Genesis, like also chapter 49, verse 18, the verse we just looked at. Um, Joseph's eyes were not on the patriarch Jacob, but they were on God and on what God was doing. And so, um, let's read it. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Um, Joseph wasn't in a position to extend a prophetic blessing, but these meaningful words were what the brothers needed to remember God's gracious purposes. Um, God alone is the judge. Do not fear. He is powerful and gracious. You know how powerful he is? He's so powerful. He overcame your evil to make it good, um, to turn it into good. And you know how gracious he is. He did that so that many people should be kept alive. And not just many, but you. You were part of the recipients of that gracious, sovereign graciousness. And then we see Joseph as a willing agent of blessing. Not only is he, he does not seem irritated with, the, with them for being fearful and forgetful, but he reminds them generously and graciously, um, 
I will provide for you and your children. And he knows that is, or it seems that he knows, that's not him being awesome. That's God being generous. Um, and he's a conduit. And so we see uh, the next section, um, Joseph's last directions about death. They also point to God's grace. Um, six years go by without mention between 21 and 22, which suggests to me again the narrator's purpose is to parallel these two men's lives. Uh, Joseph's with Jacob's. We get some facts about Joseph's life and family, verse 22 and 23. He gives the brothers some last directions as he's dying. Um, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, verse 24, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, surely God will visit you and you will you shall carry my bones up from here. That is God's grace. He's not saying, if you're really good, God will come and rescue you. If you are very faithful, if you do the right thing, no, God promised, covenanted with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his characters on the line, he will not fail to come and visit you and bring you uh, up out of the land when it is time. So, it's God's sovereign grace. And then he said, basically, don't bury me here. I don't want to be buried in Egypt. I want to be buried in the land because that's where God's promises have us. Um, and we see he died. Um, and then we have this last section. It's very short. The last part of chapter uh, 50, verse 26, the morning of compliance, the obedience in mourning is interrupted. Remember, Jacob's directions were similar, but his family carried them out promptly. They didn't wait. Um, Joseph said, wait. God will surely visit you then. Uh, you shall carry my bones from here. So he's saying, wait, this needs to happen after God is, or as a part of God's deliverance, not now, but later. And so the brothers did what they needed to do now. They embalmed Joseph and they got his body in the waiting state. And then the narrative cuts off short. It's sort of an odd place. You're like, why? <laughs> why would it cut off there? Remember, the most likely first audience of Genesis was the Israelites of the Exodus community. And so imagine what they understood when hearing this narrative. Jacob's burial was already there. It was complete. They were going that direction. Um, but Joseph's, in comparison, was incomplete. And so um, the audience, they themselves were carrying Joseph's bone. They were fulfilling the oath that their ancestors had made to Joseph. Um, Moses uh, carried, made sure they carried him out. Exodus thirteen nineteen assures us of that. And somebody in the family, some, some Israel was actually carrying them. And they could go, anybody who wasn't probably could go and see the ossuary or the coffin. Um, it was part of what God was do. what Joshua had said, God, was, God would do that. And so, we see at the very end of Joshua, the second to the last verse of the book of Joshua, when God's people were settled in the land, Israel buried Joseph's bones at Shechem. And for um, what did that mean? Well, for they were, it was still unfolding. Genesis, even though the, the beginning part was done, it had begun something that was still continuing. And so, God's purposes uh, were continuing, and there was an invitation to steward it, to be an heir, 
and to participate. And so for us as modern readers, we too can learn to wait well. Wait well as stewards, as heirs and participants. God's sovereignty is sure. His grace is sure. His deliverance is sure, just as Joseph and Jacob spoke. So a principle I think we can learn is that God can be trusted to keep His promises to deliver His people. God can be trusted to keep His promises to deliver His people. Faithful hearts by His grace. Expect this. We live our lives accordingly. It gives us strength. He gives us strength and courage to hang on. Um, We are not waiting for a thing. We're waiting for a person. We're waiting for the one who has proven himself faithful time and time again to deliver us, to be gracious to all who trust him. And even when our faith stumbles, God will still be faithful. First John tells us he is greater than our hearts. So where are you waiting? And are you waiting well? What would that look like in your circumstance right now in going into the summer to wait well? Believing God's promises for deliverance are certain. Um, where are you struggling to believe that God's promises are true or that God is good? Um, where is it hard for you to wait for answers? Wait for strength, wait for hope, wait for joy, to wait for God to show you the next step, to wait for God to help you have money to pay that bill, to wait for your grandma to heal or to not heal, to wait for reconciliation of an old wound. Um, Take heart. You are not alone. You are fully known and fully loved. The Lord will not abandon any who trust in him. The Lion of Judah is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He is Lord over that hard place in your life and mine and in mine. Will you dare to believe that? Will you bring it to him? Will you look and wait and hang on with hope, but wait actively as a participant in God's story with your eyes fixed on that horizon? May he carry us into this summer and through the summer with, with hearts that love him more and eyes that are more firmly fixed on him and his plan. We pray this. Uh, yeah, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for everything you do and how you love us. Pray, Father, that you would continue your, your good work, your deliverance and your grace, your sovereignty, your power. Um, Would you prove yourself once again to be faithful, our faithful shepherd and uh, king? And so, Father, would you be with all of us as we go into the summer? Um, In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the St. Louis Young Adults BSF podcast. This is our final lesson in our study of the book of Genesis. Join us next year as we study the Gospel of Matthew. For more information and to register, contact our class by visiting bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. That's bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. Bible Study Fellowship is an international, interdenominational, nonprofit organization that is dedicated to studying God's Word one verse at a time and strengthening the local church. For more information, visit bsfinternational.org.